0: Welcome to the London First Baptist Church Podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of October 10th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I invite you to take your Bibles, open them to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Acts, chapter 21, as we continue our journey through this book. We took a little break last week. and did something a little different as we were in Ephesians, chapter 2, this morning. We are back and... Acts 21. You know, there are times, and and we understand that people sometimes wonder if the Bible is all that we claim that it is and all that it claims about itself. Is it really God's Word? Can we trust it? Is it simply not maybe just a, a bunch of guys writing in old dead languages and just giving us their two cents? And is it really to be thought of as the Word of God? Well, there are many reasons that we couldn't get into this morning to believe that it is, but one of them, I think, is this. As you read through the Scriptures, whether it be from Genesis to Revelation, you read about the accounts of all the people that God used, Abraham and Esther and David and Jeremiah and Peter and James and Mary and all these folks. What you realize when you see their stories is how often they mess up. And even the early church in the book of Acts, we realize, we perhaps have in our minds this idea, this ideal picture of what the early church must have been like. We want to be a church like they were in Acts. Well, the truth is, the church in Acts had a lot of issues. And I, I, I cite those things because of this. If if human beings were going to write a book about getting you to follow everything they believe to be true, they wouldn't have painted their heroes in such bad light so often. The truth is, Abraham, David, Mary, Peter, James, you name it, and they had problems. And the heroes of the faith, as we often call them, have major issues. And the early church, the, those opening days, we think of the early church in the book of Acts, perhaps we'll think of Pentecost, and 5,000 people coming to know Christ. Wouldn't it be great to be a part of that? Well, Absolutely. But recognize what happens when you have 5,000 people who didn't know each other the day before, who come from different backgrounds, all of a sudden come together. There's problems, and we saw some of those earlier in the book of Acts. And one of the things that's running through the entire book of Acts is there is some serious animosity within fractions of the early church towards one another, especially, unfortunately, between early believers who were Jewish and early believers who were Gentile. There were lots of anger there's lots of distrust and lots of even uh, prejudice between these two groups and so as we come to our passage this morning in acts chapter 21 the apostle paul finds himself once again smack dab in the middle of some major issues and he's doing his best to be a diplomat it's like walking on eggshells you never know who you're going to offend and paul finds himself in this category so, we're going to begin reading in portions of Acts chapter 21. Actually, we're going to begin reading in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And then they said to him, "'You see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done?' They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there's nothing to the things which they've been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what strangled and from fornication, then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each of them. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law. And this place, and besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob for the multitude of the people kept following them shouting away with him as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks he said to the commander may I say something to you he said you know Greek then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago started up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness Paul said I'm a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia a citizen of no insignificant city and I beg you allow me to speak to the people When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. We're going to pause there. We'll get to that speech later on uh, next week. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we had read earlier in Acts 21 that Paul, uh, even going back to Acts chapter 20, that Paul, under the, the direction of the Spirit, was going to Jerusalem. Now, in Acts chapter 19, it says that Paul had purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, Paul says that he is bound by the Spirit, knowing that he is going to, supposed to go to Jerusalem, even though trouble awaits. And repeatedly in the first 14 verses of this chapter, uh, people around Paul are telling him the Spirit has told us, if you go to Jerusalem, there's going to be trouble. So Paul he feels he is bound, he, he is determined to go despite the warnings that trouble awaits. And we looked a little bit at this a couple weeks ago, but let me remind you about why Paul is going to Jerusalem. We know that the book of Romans was written by Paul just before he left for, uh, from Ephesus to go to Jerusalem. So the book of Romans has some insight in, in that for us. It gives us some of the reasons about why Paul went To Jerusalem and in Romans chapter 9 Paul says this I'm telling the truth in Christ I'm not lying my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren my kinsmen according to my according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons Paul tells us in Acts chapter 9 that it breaks his heart that his own people, the Jewish, the Jewish nation by and large, has rejected Christ. He goes on in Romans chapter 10 to say, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, the Jews, is for their salvation. So you see that even though God has made Paul a missionary to the Gentiles, it is definitely on Paul's heart that his own people, are by and large without Christ. Romans chapter 11, Paul says this, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. What Paul is saying there is, listen, he goes, I'm magnifying, I'm making known, I talk about my ministry to other Jews in hopes that when they hear about it, God will provoke them to jealousy. In other words, they're going to want God to work in them the way he's working in the Gentiles. And he's hoping that some of them will become saved. So we see that part of why Paul is going back to Jerusalem is his heart's broken for the fact that many of his Jewish uh, brothers and sisters don't know Jesus, and he wants the opportunity to share with them the gospel. And secondly, he wants to do that in part by letting them know that God's working among the Gentiles. And he's hoping that will kind of spur or kick some things into their Jewish hearts so they'll be more open to what God wants to do. So he wants to go back to Jerusalem to kind of get all this kick-started to do some things. Now, there's also a second part of it. Now, Luke does not talk about it a whole lot in the book of Acts, but if we were to go to places like uh, uh, Romans chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and other places in Scripture, we would find out that Paul was taking up a collection amongst all the churches in Macedonia and Asia, in Greece and in Asia, to to go back and to help alleviate some of the Christians who were in Jerusalem and their poverty. We know from earlier in Acts, that there was a famine in the area around Jerusalem and that there was a lot of great need there. In fact, the, the church in Antioch, 10 chapters ago, had taken up a collection to send money to the people, to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem for help and so paul had continued to take up a collection throughout the churches in asia and in europe to take back to jerusalem to help with the uh with with the physical needs there so paul's got two reasons to come he wants to see jewish people saved he wants to provoke a little bit in them this idea of openness to the gospel of jesus christ and he wants to take this this offering Back to the Jewish Church, the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem, and I, I have a feeling that these two things are even beyond that hooked up together. I would imagine that in Paul's own mind, he's hoping that the idea that a bunch of Gentiles took up a collection to help the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that that would kind of help pave the way. I mean, that seems like a logical thing to think, right? So I think Paul is doing a number of things. He's wanting to help out. He's wanting to share the gospel. But he's also wanting to, as he meets these needs, I believe he's wanting to pave the way for unity, for a gospel unity among the two factions of the church, the Jewish church and the Gentile church. So all these things are playing on Paul's mind to meet meet the needs and to, 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 to love the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, but also to be a bridge of peace between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers of the early church. If we were to go on and read more of Romans 11, which we're not going to do this morning, we would see how much Paul talks about to the, Jewish, or to the Gentile believers in Rome that they need to have a certain attitude of humility towards their Jewish cousins, their Jewish, their Jewish forebearers, if you will. Because it's through the Jewish nation that God made the Messiah known. It's through the Jewish nation that God had brought His Word. It was through the Jewish nation that the Messiah had been born. So he talks to them about how they need to be loving and gracious towards the Jewish people. So Paul's coming to Jerusalem with the hopes of sharing the gospel, with the hope of meeting needs, and with the hope that in doing those first two, he can broker, if you will, a peace between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers that the church would be unified. So that's Paul's goals. He walks up into uh, to Jerusalem, probably shows up. It wasn't like they wrote a check or had a credit card. So he, uh, Paul's bringing this collection from all those churches. So remember, there was a group of about nine of them. And Why was there so many of them that came from, from Europe and came from uh, Asia with that money? Because you know, if you got a lot of money with you, you've got to have some guards, right? got to have some bodyguards. So they're probably bringing in bags of money. So Paul shows up. Uh, they, they meet with James and the elders of the church there in Jerusalem, and they probably just, ka drop some change down. Because there's not paper money back then either. It's coins and stuff like that. So they drop all this stuff down, and Paul tells them what it's there for, and then begins to relate to them all that God has done and all these missionary journeys that we've been reading about for the last few months. And James and the other believers go, man, That's great. And then their response to the offering and their response to what Paul says is this. See, how many thousands are among the Jews who have believed and they're all zealous for the law? So the response is, okay, that's cool, but we're, we're, we're really glad that God's done all this. Look, we got good things going on here too. Look at all these zealous Jewish believers. And by the way, Paul, all these guys who are here, all these Jewish believers who are zealous for the law, they've been hearing some bad things about you. And all of a sudden, the meeting takes a turn. I don't know, the Bible doesn't give us details, but I'm just kind of wondering if Paul showed up hoping, got this offering, got this stuff good here, going to make peace, it's going to be good, they're going to hear all these great things. And what he hears is, Paul, we've got a problem. All these folks out here in Jerusalem, in our church, and in the city in Jerusalem in particular, they're hearing some bad things about you. They hear that you're telling Jewish believers, as they're telling Jews everywhere you go, that they don't have to follow the law of Moses. Paul, we appreciate all that God's done. We appreciate you trying to meet some of those needs. But Paul, you've got a problem. These folks out here don't like you. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm wondering if Paul might have been just a little bit taken aback by that. All the work, his heart broken for his, his, his fellow believers, and he gets there and finds out that really what he's doing seems to be met with a little bit of reluctance. Maybe even put some cold water on that. Let me give you some context, too. This is taking place around 57 A.D., we know from history that at that time in Jerusalem, we're just, uh, just a couple years away from what's called the Jewish Revolt, the Jewish Revolution, where the Jews essentially began a revolt and a civil war against the Roman Empire. To say that tensions are high in Jerusalem at this point in time would be an understatement. There have been a series of you know, not the best governors that Romans put in charge in Jerusalem and in, and in Israel, and it's just caused and it's made matters worse. There is, at this point in time in Jerusalem and in Israel as a whole, tensions are about as high as they've ever been under Roman occupation. Again, we're just a couple years away from a full, all-blown military revolt by Israel against the Roman Empire. You you saw, uh, at the end of this passage, the Roman uh, commander who arrested Paul talk about an Egyptian leader with 4,000 assassins. There was... At this point in time, there had been a rise since the time of Christ to Paul here about that 20-something years, a rise in Jewish uh, hostilities towards Rome, and there had been one group called the Sakari. Uh, that's a it's a Greek word for, or it's, a, it's an ancient word for dagger, and these were essentially Jewish terrorists. So what they did was they hid knives, they hid daggers, they hid them in their cloaks, and all they did was, and you imagine, you you know, there's there's no metal detectors back then, they would get into the crowds in Jerusalem especially around times of the feast. And by the way, all this is taking place around Pentecost that year. And these guys would hold or hide these daggers in their cloaks, and they would come behind, and they would assassinate. They would stab and kill Jewish leaders they thought were cooperating too much with Rome. This is what they did. And these were all over the place. They, they They had instilled quite a bit of fear. They targeted... Jewish leaders who cooperated with Rome, or who at least they thought had cooperated with Rome. So you've got all this going on. You've got just the ancient Jewish hostility towards Gentiles in general. And when, when Paul arrives to James and with the Jewish church in Jerusalem in particular, the larger context and the culture is very anti-Roman, anti-Gentile. They're ready for everyone to leave. And now the Jewish, the, the Jewish church, the Jewish believers in Christ, are getting that pressure from outside and dealing with their own history and their own traditions about whether or not they really like this idea of Gentiles being welcomed in to the people of God. So all this is kind of hitting at the same time. And Paul walks into this tinderbox. It's, right, it's ready to blow. It, no matter what Paul does, where he goes, he's allowed to light a lot of match that will fu- light the fuse and just make everything explode. So all this is going on. And James... Perhaps trying to make uh, is trying to build a bridge. Perhaps I mean, on top of all this, Paul's got enemies. Just remember this: Paul's got enemies. Paul's a former Pharisee. He's one of those guys that used to try to kill Christians, and now he is one. So he's got people mad at him on both sides. He's got former Pharisees and Jews who are mad at him for for selling out to the believers of Christ, and he's got Christians who still don't sure that they trust him either because he's gone to the Gentiles. So Paul's got enemies. The culture, the whole atmosphere is is fraught with danger. And the meeting goes like this. This is great, but Paul, you've got a problem. We've got a problem. And the problem is people are hearing that you're teaching all this stuff. It almost sounds like James and the guys were ready for Paul to show up, doesn't it? We've got a problem, Paul. Everyone around here thinks that you don't like or that you don't, you don't think that you should have to follow the law of Moses from Exodus and Leviticus and all those things. Now, they acknowledge that Gentiles didn't have to do some things. They acknowledge that. But Paul, we've got a problem. <clears throat> and so, Paul, we have a solution for you. <clears throat> we have four men going through a, a vow. It's probably a Nazarite vow. <clears throat> And Paul, if you will, show up with these guys at the temple here tomorrow and do a vow of purification. By the way, in case you wondered what this was, if a, if a Jew traveled elsewhere in the world and came back to Jerusalem, before he could go to the temple, he had to go through seven days of purification because he had associated with Gentiles. So before he was allowed to go back in the temple, he had to go through a seven-day purification route. So Paul, if you'll go back, come back here, go through that seven days, and on top of that, jump in with these other four guys. And on top of that, pay all their expenses. So when these guys got through with their vows, when Paul got through with his vows, Paul would pony up the money to buy all the sacrifices and stuff. He basically foot the bill for all five of them. And Paul, if you'll do all that, it'll prove to everybody that you're really one of us, that you're really a good Jew, and it'll calm everything down. <clears throat> now, honestly, if I'm Paul... I've got a few words for you guys. (laughs) If I'm Paul and I walk into that meeting, I'm picking that money back up and going back to Antioch. (laughs) But again, what's Paul's heart? Paul's heart is for the salvation of his people and for the church to be unified. That's Paul's heart. So Paul agrees to this plot, this little PR stunt, if you will, designed to make him look more like a proper Jew to the people in Jerusalem and even to the other Jewish Christians. I, again, I, I can't tell you for sure what Paul said or did in that meeting. I don't know. didn't say. But if I'm him, I'm irritated. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying that. I'm, I'd be irritated. I'd be angry. I'd be typically going... I'm doing all this for you guys and this is the thanks I get? I'm just going to go back to to Asia and leave you guys with the dust. But Paul doesn't do that because his heart's broken for them. And not only is his heart broken for the Jews that don't know him, don't know Christ, his heart's broken for this schism in the church between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Paul is deeply valuing the unity of The church and all this so he he does this and things seem to be going well seven days later he goes to the temple he goes through this process there in verse 22 or verse 27 and it says some Jews from Asia that's most likely Ephesus now if you remember from a few weeks ago when Paul was first starting his journey back to Jerusalem he discovers that there had been a plot by some of the Jewish folks in Asia to assassinate him. In fact, it appears that the plan was that they hired some guys on the ship that, uh, that Paul was going to take back to Jerusalem, and they hired some guys to kill him on the way there. Paul finds out about it, doesn't take that ship, <laughs> finds another way. And so it's possible that once they found out that Paul kind of escaped their plan, that they go to Jerusalem and try to head him off and try to come up with a different plan. So it's a good possibility that these folks here, these, these Jews here in Asia are from Asia who show up in Jerusalem, a part of the group that wanted to kill Paul earlier, a few chapters ago, and they've come in here and they're stirring up trouble just like they did in Ephesus, just like they did in Thessalonica, just like they did everywhere else in Corinth and places like that. And they they make false accusations about Paul. One of them being, he's brought in a Gentile to the temple. You're going, what's the big deal about that? Well, I've already mentioned all this other stuff. The Romans had been trying so hard to make peace with the Israelites that one of the things they had acknowledged and given Israel permission to do was to keep non-Jews outside of the temple. Now the temple there in Jerusalem was a big place. And there are three main courts. The very one on the outside, the, the, the farthest outside, was called the Gentile court, or the court of the Gentiles. And if you aren't Jewish, you can go in there. The next place in, the Gentiles couldn't go. It was called the court of the women, and Jewish women could go in there. And then the interposed part was just for Jewish men. Women couldn't go there. The accusation here is that the court of the Gentiles had been, had been breached and that Paul had brought one of these Gentile believers into the inner courts. And it hadn't happened, but they were accusing him of that. And so a riot's about to assume, and in fact it looks and appears, that what they did was they riled the crowd up to such a degree that they've got Paul by the arms, they're taking him out, and they're ready to kill him. And by the way, the Romans were trying so hard to keep peace with the Jews, with the Jews that they gave them permission to kill anybody who came into the Jewish part of the the temple. They'd give them permission. The Romans had said, if a Gentile, if a non-Jew walks into the temple too far, Jews, you have permission to kill him on the spot. Even if the guy's a Roman citizen. Now, that's a remarkable concession the Romans had made in trying to keep the peace. That tells you a little bit about what's going on there. So now they've accused Paul of bringing in a Gentile to that banned area, And they're mad, and they're about to take Paul out, and they're about to beat him to death. So let me ask you this Does it appear that this PR stunt has worked? Doesn't appear to have been, does it? All this expense has been a failure. God, I think, rescues Paul through the efforts of the Romans. And they, essentially, I say they arrest him. What they really do is they pull him out of the mob and try to figure out what's going on. And Paul is caught. He's caught between this plan of James and the Jewish believers. He's caught between that, his desire to share the gospel, all the false accusations. He's paid money out of his own pocket. He's worked, he's prayed, and it appears to not be working. Let me refer you from First Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this: "For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew." in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, that's the Gentiles, by the way, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, and to I become all things, To all men, so that by all means I may win some. Did Paul have to take the vow and go through the purification process to be right with God? No. Did Paul have to pay the expenses of these other four men? No. What was he doing? In Jerusalem, he was being a Jew so that by all means, he could win the Jews. He didn't change his beliefs. By the way, if we were to read the larger section of Paul's reading in places like Romans and Galatians, you'd find out that uh, Paul wasn't even going back on his own thing here. Paul had made known throughout his writings that when it came to the what you and I think of as the Old Testament Jewish laws, that you didn't have to keep those in order to be saved. You didn't have to make the sacrifices. You didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't have to uh, obey the dietary laws. You didn't have to do all that stuff in order to be right with God. He also says that for those who are raised with that, who, those who feel that's the way they want to worship God, it's fine to do all those as long as you understand that those things aren't what makes you right with God. And he says, if you, don't, if you aren't raised with all that stuff, don't worry about it. So these things are not meaningful for salvation one way or the other, Paul says, but he's going to abide by the traditions if it gives him the route to share the gospel. And so for us, it may seem extreme. It may even seem unfair. In fact, there have been many who have looked at this and called Paul even unwise for doing what he did. But I think if you read the New Testament, what you'll find from Paul is he's willing to do just about anything to share the gospel. He's willing to do just about anything that someone might hear about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Even if that means he has to pay money he didn't owe, do things he didn't have to do, take a vow he didn't have to keep, eat on a day he didn't have to eat, eat, don't eat things he didn't have to eat, whatever it might be, he's willing to do that so they will hear the gospel. He's willing to do that so that the people of God will love one another and be unified in front of the world. He's willing to go to extreme measures to accomplish these things. Which begs the question, you and I are perhaps not placed in the same position that Paul is. You and I are not faced with the idea that based upon what we eat or based upon some religious observance, we're going to have two different groups of people hate us. And yet what we find is, that often people who follow Christ today can be just as angry with each other as the the Christians of of Paul's age were. Paul's age, the more I got into details this week of what the culture was around Paul, the, the, the atmosphere around Jerusalem was like, it sounds a lot like our world today. People angry, people distrustful, people skeptical, people even growing increasingly violent and angry all the time. I imagine if ancient Israel had Twitter, And Facebook, it would have been a mess. And yet, in the middle of all that, Paul is doing things he doesn't have to do. Going to extreme lengths to be weak to the weak, Jews to the Jews, Gentiles to the Gentiles, so that he can, by all means, see someone come to know the surpassing remarkable gospel of Christ. You see how in love Paul is? Not just with the church or even his own people, but how much Paul is in love with Christ. For before Christ, before Paul knew Christ, Paul, in his desire to serve God for what he knew, was angry and violent, willing to even kill, to imprison, to persecute. And now that Paul knows Christ, Paul is willing to be killed, to be persecuted, to be jailed for the opportunity to share Christ. You see the difference there? And so the question for us is even this morning, are we so in love with our Savior? Are we so loving towards those around us, both in the church and outside the church, that we'll go to extreme measures, even be treated unfairly, even be out money we don't have to spend, or whatever the links God may call us to, if it means that we get to share the gospel. Following Christ can be hard. Following in His footsteps means following in the footsteps of one who went to the cross. But Paul would tell us the way he does in Romans chapter 8, that I consider the difficulties of this present world, I want to paraphrase here, to pale in comparison, to be nothing compared to the glories that are to come. Paul can do this. He can take extreme measures because the things he's losing, he considers to be worthless for the sake of the gospel. And because 20-something years before this, his own Messiah also walked the streets of Jerusalem, taken by the mob, falsely accused, and of course Christ ultimately died to the very people who did that for him so that they would be unified and make peace and know the gospel. And Paul stands here as a result of that. So Paul's like, how can I do anything less than what my Savior has already done? Paul went to extreme measures. To what measures are we willing to go? How much do we love?